0: Thank you. guys welcome back to revive school here we are lesson 104 we're in the historical books talking through the book of second chronicles now just last week we were talking about the book of first chronicles which our theme was the son of david but now we have a a new theme we've got a new guy filling in for kevin he's really old school sean carlson sean do you remember our our theme for second chronicles royals you came up with it by the way Royal, th- royal throne, royal throne. <laughs> the royal throne. Now think about in Second Chronicles 1 and 2, remember it really is just a continuation of, of the first book. You know What you have is, is that David, uh, uh, through a connection with King Hiram right of Tyre, had a friendship. Now Solomon knew that, so then Solomon sends a letter to King Hiram and says, hey, by the way, I'd like to build the temple for the Lord, and I need provision and I need workers. King Hiram says, great. It's a done deal. I'll provide some of the workers, I'll provide the provision, you help provide some workers, you help pay us. Like there's a whole lot going on. A business transaction actually took place through letters. And so what you see in 2 Chronicles 3 is the beginning of what I think is probably one of the coolest things. Uh, like God's actually going to use Solomon to start building the temple. And it says then Solomon in Second Chronicles 3:1, then Solomon began to build the Lord's temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Where the Lord appeared to his father David. We'll get into that here in a little bit. Why is this story important? Remember the audience. Remember the group from Zerubbabel, the group from Ezra, the group from Nehemiah. They're coming out of exile, correct? And they're coming back to the land to learn everything from 1st and uh, 2nd Chronicles, right? The chronicler wants them to learn how do you do these things that I've told you to do. Well, if, if Sean, we talked about that there is three temples, at least three temples, right? We know that Solomon's temple is the first, but we also know that Zerubbabel is actually going to be building the temple as well because after um, 586 uh, B.C., that temple is going to be destroyed. So Solomon or um, Zerubbabel comes back into land. He's got to learn how to build the temple, right? That would be a fair statement. So I think it's important that Zerubbabel learns how did Solomon do it. So, Sean, can you go to Zechariah 4.10? Uh, look at this scripture. For who scorns the day of small things? These seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. Zerubbabel has to rebuild, reestablish the actual temple. So if a guy's coming back out of exile to learn this, this is where he might go. So he wants to go into Second Chronicles 3 to learn about how did... How did Solomon do this? Well, where did Solomon do this? So if we can go to 2 Chronicles 3, well, it says Solomon began to build the Lord's temple. This is the first one in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Now we have this amazing graphic that Tom helped put together, which means he took a snapshot of it from somewhere else. And uh, and so here you have Mount Moriah. OK, now here you have the Mount of Olives. OK, then you have the Kidron Valley. So basically what we're seeing is is Mount Moriah is where he's going to actually build. It says on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David. Now, if you remember, this is the site. Scripture says that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Onan, Ornan, the Jebusite. So, Sean, can you uh, can you go back to the threshing floor uh, picture? So Mount Moriah. Now, when you blow this thing up, this is what it looks like. So David originally came here. He negotiated a land deal, right, with Ornan. Remember, Ornan was like, no, hey, I'm not charging you. You're King David. He says, no, 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 I need to pay for this. So he gives him a ton of gold, right? So Ornan makes a crazy amount of of money, right? And so then why? So that here Solomon's temple could be built. But David was the one who established the land. I think that's a really cool picture. Now, if you go from not just King David establishing this with Ornan, Sean, Clayton, Tom, do you guys remember at all? What else was so important about this land before King David? Abraham, Isaac. Abraham and Isaac. So Abraham went to sacrifice his son Isaac, his only son, aside from Ishmael. It's always kind of weird, you know, uh, on this piece of land. It's also where Abraham interacted with Melchizedek. So this is a really, really important piece of land. So think about this. Abraham's going to sacrifice his son. Doesn't happen. There's a ram in the thicket. David buys the land years later. And he's given this land, why? So that the temple can be built. I I really believe that land in Israel is always important. In fact, remember this, you guys. This is the land where the Lord appeared to Ornan and to David. Do you guys remember this? The angel of the Lord showed up. Like, hey, by the way, he almost wiped out all of Jerusalem. And instead, now here we have the beginning of the building. And so that's what I'm just going to write up here. Kind of walk you through beginning to build. Then it says in verse 2 and back in Second Chronicles 3, it says he began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. Most would say, John MacArthur included, this was during April to May time frame of 966 B.C. Anybody have any idea, like, the time frame of how long it took to build uh, the temple? 70 years? A lot less. Seven and a half years. Uh, seven. Seven. You, uh, you were thinking that number, so... So, think about this. They're beginning to build, but it took seven and a half years to build. (laughs) I just, I love when we have these moments because I'm pretty sure I do those all the time. So, Sean, seven and a half years. Clayton, seven and a half years. Tom, seven and a half years to actually complete. All right, so here it is. In verse three, it says, these are Solomon's foundations for building God's temple. Now, so the foundation was 90 feet and the width was 30 feet, okay? Crazy enough, uh, it's actually not that big of a, of a building. In fact, if you'll go to that slide of uh, the actual Solomon's temple. So here you have, we're going to go over the basic outlines, the basic plan in the next three to seven verses of, of really, what does this look like? Okay, so he's beginning to build it. So by the way, I need you to build a foundation, okay? One commentator wrote, Martin Selman wrote, it's actually smaller than many church buildings, actually. Uh, it says this in verse 4. Here's what they begin to build, okay? First of all, it says the portico, okay? So the porch, okay? So it says the portico, which was across the front, extending across the width of the temple, 30 feet wide, its height was 30 feet. And by the way, the whole inner surface, he overlaid its inner surface with pure gold. Wow. Do you guys remember the guy who's doing the work right now? Do you remember his name? Uh, the guy that King Hiram sent. He had a funny name. It was the guy that King Hiram sent. He did have a funny name, Huram-Habi. He says, yes, uh, it is in Second ver- Chronicles 2, uh, specifically verse 13. I now have sent Huram-Habi, a skillful man who has understanding. So when we're talking about he overlays the inner surface with his pure gold, that's who we're talking about. Okay? Huram-Habi is the one doing this work. Now, it continues on in verse 5. And what you're going to see in verses 5 through 7 is we're going to call this the main sanctuary. And the main sanctuary is going to go from verses five through seven. It says a larger room he paneled of cypress wood, overlaid with fine gold and decorated with palm trees and chains. Now when I when I when I read this about the palm trees and chains, I was like Well, that's kind of an interesting Florida look. (laughs) You know, like, oh, hey, look, they're adding a little feel of of Hawaii. Some would say that the palm trees represented, again, the tree of life. Some would say the palm trees represented, again, just an an image of, of a garden scene. Because these chains, Nelson's commentary says it's a chain work. It could be referred to, just hang on here with this, an interlocking design of buds and flowers. So if you have an interlocking uh, chain work of buds and flowers, you throw in palm, palm trees, maybe a picture of the Garden of Eden. Maybe. Just a thought. I just kind of like thinking through these. Again, you can't prove any of this stuff. But in verse 6, it just says, He adorned the temple with precious stones for beauty. And the gold was the gold of Parveum. Uh I did a crazy amount of study on Parvam. Most people will tell you they don't know where it is. But the only thing we can conclude is that it's a super high quality of gold. In verse 7, as they continue to build, right, the main sanctuary, it says, He overlaid the temple, the beams, the thresholds, its walls and doors with gold. And He carved cherubim on the walls. Hey, I I don't know. What do you guys think about on this over here? Uh, Let's put on some angels. Let's put on some cherubim. I mean, to me, this is like the best of the best. Everything is overlaid with gold. Beams, thresholds, walls, doors. I mean, it's a pretty powerful picture. And then, oh, by the way, the cherubim is on the side. So now what I want to do is is he's, he's starting to build a porch. He's building the main sanctuary. And then we're going to get into verses 8 through 13, what we would call the holy of holies. This would be the permanent home where the presence of God uh, could could manifest himself, right? This is kind of what we're talking about. But in verse 8, it says, then he made. You know, this this phrase, then he made, 14 paragraphs begin with this phrase. In verse 8, it says, then he made. Then, Sean, if you go to verse 10, just want to kind of keep showing you. It says, he made, okay? Then if you go to verse 14 of 2 Chronicles 3, it says, he made. So three times already, if you go to verse 15, okay, in front of the temple, he made two pillars. So again, over and over, if you go to verse 16, it's going to be in here twice. On the front and the back, he had made chain work. And at the end, he made 100 pomegranates, which I just think just we'll get into some of this teaching. But here is Mindy's pomegranates and then pomegranate flowers. And so this, this understanding of he actually, he did this. David's plans actually become a reality through his son. One of the things I think is really interesting is that when you hear from the Lord, God gives you a plan, you actually have to do it. One of the things I think to me that I really was encouraged is is this phrase, he made. Because think about it this way, you guys, Solomon, like Moses, I mean, as Martin Selman says, he's faithful to the plans revealed by, by God. Most of the details of the building were listed. And guess what? Solomon did it. God truly gave him a game plan. Solomon's temple and Moses' tent. The the purpose of the tent was that here you have a traveling sanctuary. that It it allowed um, the presence of God to 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 come into that location. Now Solomon is saying, okay, here is the permanent residence. Here's the residence of the almighty Yahweh, the the name of Yahweh where he can reside. And it all comes back to what somebody had to do it. Hiram Hobby, right, uh, actually ended up making this because Solomon walked out. Can I just say, for me, faithfulness. Imagine if Solomon had all the plan. the prints. Oh yeah, did you hear? We're gonna, we're gonna build a temple. Who gets tired of people talking about visions and they never walk it out? They're just dreamers. To me, the difference between a dreamer and a faithful person is one who dreams but then walks out what God showed him to do. You can't just stay in your hut and just say, God, uh, and like, I know this is what you're asking me to do, but you, you never walk it out. And so, to me, I, I love what Gary Linton says this. Faithful doesn't mean that you're a perfect person. He simply means that God is looking for those that are devoted to doing what he's asked him to do. And that's what Solomon does. Solomon walks out building a porch, building a main sanctuary, building the Holy of Holies. I'm gonna go through some scriptures, cause I, I, I kind of was already like, Lord, how do I walk through this process for me? Like if I'm gonna if I'm gonna walk through this process of like Solomon's life, how was he faithful? Well, let's kind of look throughout scripture about where did we see this in other people's lives. So Sean, if you'll go to first Samuel twenty six, verse twenty three. But I want to just kind of walk through first Samuel twenty six verses twenty three. It says May the Lord repay, look at this, every man for his righteousness and his loyalty. Remember this scenario? David says, I wasn't willing to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Even the Lord handed you over to me today. This is how faithful David was. David could have taken out Saul's life, the first original king of Israel, but he didn't. And so he says, may the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his loyalty because of my faithfulness to understanding my calling. Understanding your faithfulness doesn't mean you have to force something. It means you're trusting God in the process. In fact, if you go to Second Chronicles sixteen nine. Second Chronicles sixteen nine. For the eyes of Yahweh roam throughout the earth to show Himself strong for those whose heart are completely His. You've been foolish in this matter, therefore you will have wars from now on. But look, look who the Lord's looking for. Whose hearts are radically sold out for His. For those who are faithful to doing the task. Can you go to Psalm 12, verse 1? So I think it's a fair statement to say God is constantly looking for the faithful. It says help, Lord, Psalm twelve one, help, Lord, for no faithful one remains. The loyal have disappeared from the human race. You know what this means? This is really hard to come by. I actually believe the Lord's constantly looking for those who will be faithful. Now I'm gonna say a little bit of a the word faith and belief at times throughout all of Scripture, they're interchangeable. But in my mind, when I think of belief and faith, I think of belief as I believe in God, but I think of faith, I believe in God, so therefore I'm going to walk out what I believe. Faith to me always implies action. And God is constantly looking for people who will walk out what they believe. That's faithfulness to me. Solomon is walking out what he knows to, be, to believe. True, I'm going to be a part of the royal throne. I've got to establish the temple. I've got to establish the royal palace. I'm going to walk this out. Proverbs 20, verse 6. Proverbs 20, verse 6, it just says this. Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find, you can use this this, uh, word interchangeably, trustworthy, who can find a faithful man? God is looking for one he can count on. I I need you to build a temple, David, but it's not going to be you. No, it's going to be the faithful one, Solomon. Proverbs 28, verse 20. Because here's what happens when you begin to walk out the faithfulness. Proverbs twenty eight twenty says, "A faithful man will have many blessings, but one in a hurry to get rich will not go unpunished." I love this phrase because Solomon could have asked to be to be wealthy. He could have asked to be to be rich, to be loaded. But he asked for wisdom, and because of that, I believe God honestly blessed him and is going to um, continue to bless him, and it's because he's faithful. He's faithful to the task that God has given him. When you go to Matthew 25? This is the verse that everybody knows. Everybody quotes. Maybe you just don't know. It comes from here. Matthew 25, verse 21. At the end of the life, here's the question. Do you hear this? Will we hear this? His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things and now I'll put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy." David, the mighty David, King David, the anointed one, right, that we're talking about, the one that, like, the lineage comes through David. David wasn't asked to build the temple, Solomon was. Luke 16, verse 10. Uh, another layer here, but I think it's important to understand where we're headed. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. When I see the fact that Solomon has to take something from nothing, Zerubbabel, right, is going to actually rebuild the temple. If you go to verse 12, Sean, Luke 16, verse 12. If you have not been faithful with what belongs to somebody else, who will, go, who will give you what is your own? I, I like this because basically what we're saying is is like, I'm going to give this to somebody else. And somebody say, well, why Just simply be faithful in the small things. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2, I know we're straying away here from the story here a little bit, but I love this picture, you guys. We are servants of Christ. Look at this. And managers of God's mysteries. So you and I get to be a servant for the Lord. We could actually be a manager of God's mystery, the things that people can't figure out. And then look what it says in verse two. In this regard, it is expected of managers that each one of them be found faithful. So no, we we might not be building an elaborate temple for the Lord on Mount Moriah in the heart of the world in Jerusalem. We We might not be, but you know what is expected? That you and I are faithful, if you go back to verse one, as a servant for the Lord. That you and I are faithful and managing God's mysteries that come in the word of God. Like we are to be faithful with what we've been given. But here's the crazy part is many of us don't even know we've been given this. And all I wanted to say is, hey, consider this. You are servants of Christ, managers of God's mystery. And oh, by the way, I need you to be faithful to what I've given you. And Solomon is an incredible example of yes. So how long, how long do we have to be faithful for? Can you go to Revelation 2, verse 10? It's Kind of a drastic statement here, but how long should the, the faithfulness continue? Well, the faithfulness should continue until the end. Look at this. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. You'll have affliction for, for 10 days, but be faithful until death. And I'll give you the crown of life. Like this is the mentality that every single one of us has to have is will you carry this faithfulness honestly to the end? A, a lot of us could look at our tasks as, as menial. We could look at it as our roles that we have to do today as, man, I don't really want to do this today. But when you realize that you've been given these small little things, God says, oh, look, he actually believes I've given this to him. I'm going to give him more. He's faithful to The task. So here you have the Holy of Holies being built literally all the way 8 through verses 13. And and in this process, look at this, you guys. It says in verse 8, the length that corresponded to the width of the temple, 30 feet and its width, 30 feet. It overlaid it with 45,000 pounds of fine gold. Holy cow. (laughs) It's a mark of royalty. The temple, as as Martin Selman says, was a, a place fit for Israeli's true king. You ready for this? The Lord. Gold was everywhere. Scripture continues on in verse 9. The weight of the nails was 20 ounces of gold, and he overlaid the ceiling with gold. Many would say these nails uh, wasn't for actual, like, to hold something. It's more for decorations. And verse 10, it says he made two cherubim of sculptured work for the most holy place, and then he overlaid them with gold. The overall length of the wings of the cherubim was 30 feet. The wing of one was seven and a half feet touching the wall of the room. Its other's wing was seven and a half feet touching the wing of the other cherub. And then in verse 12, the wing of the other cherub, if you're confused which cherub, it's okay. The wing of the other cherub was seven and a half feet touching the wall of the room. Its other wing was seven and a half feet reaching the wing of the other cherub. Verse 13. The wingspan of these cherubim. Look at this. 30 feet. They stood on their feet and faced the larger Room. I mean, usually, just so you guys know, whenever there's cherubim talked about, whether it's in Ezekiel or in Psalms, it was always in the concept, context of God's heavenly uh, majesty. Like this was just the image. Like there was always this heavenly feel when the cherubim were around. Okay, so we built the porch. We're building the sanctuary. Building the holy of holies, and then it gets really interesting. I'm gonna have to the veil. It says, he made the veil of blue, purple, and crimson yarn and the fine linen. And he wove cherubim into it. I mean, this is like, to me, I mean, these first of all, these are the same colors of the veil in the tabernacle. Remember we talked about the blue, the purple, and the crimson. Remember even talking about like the royalness and then the blood and then the king and the priest. And you mix them together, you have purple. Remember all these images that people were talking about? Like, here it is again. It is being established in... The temple. That's why it's so important, you guys. So important to understand your history. And those that are coming in uh, out of exile, you know, you got to learn. Oh yeah, that was in the tabernacle. Oh, we need this. We need this in the temple. Verse fifteen. After the veil is made, scripture says, then you're going to see the entrance pillars. The entrance pillars are found in verses fifteen through seventeen. It says, in front of the temple, here it is. Remember that phrase, he made two pillars, each 27 feet high. The capital on top of each one was seven and a half feet high. <laughs> like, these are some ridiculous tall uh, pillars. Crazy enough, these pillars were freestanding and they didn't actually even support any part of the temple. Okay, continues on in verse 16. He had made chain work in the inner sanctuary and then he also put it on top of the pillars. He made a hundred pomegranates, Fasten them into the chainwork. Okay, I'm going to kind of read a couple of things here. This is kind of crazy to me. So there were seven wreaths of chainwork on each capital. Okay, this comes from First Kings seven. Two rows of cap, two rows of pomegranates were above each wreath. So really, what that means is you have a hundred pomegranates. Okay, then there was they were one out of the four strands, two to each pillar, which means there was four hundred pomegranates according to Nelson's commentary total. Like Just because you see one thing, it's like God does it above and beyond. So you have all of this elaborate stuff beginning to build the porch, the main sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, the veil, the entrance pillars. And then I was kind of like, okay, Lord, I get that we see that Solomon has to be faithful in order to walk this out. But as you begin to study through this, and I love what Martin Selman did, and this is how I want to close this out. He says, on one hand, God's nearness was reason for real joy. People are excited. The temple is being built. We can actually experience the presence of God. That's the thought behind this. But the attendance in God's earthly temple, it it gave people access to the heavenly presence. But think about this, you guys. The architects actually, the architects actually emphasized how hard it was to get to God. Because who was allowed into the Holy of Holies? Any thoughts, guys? High priest. The high priest. Which means if you're not a high priest and you're just a priest, you're still stuck. If you're not a priest and you're a Levite, you still can't get in. Oh, by the way, if you are a Korahite or a temple servant or a gatekeeper, you know what that means? You can't get in either. So even though we're building the Lord's temple, even though Solomon is experiencing like an incredible architectural build, you know what this means? It means, as Martin Selman says, and I love this, ordinary Israelites, didn't to get, they didn't get to see uh, really what was described. All this that we're talking about, they didn't even get in and see this. In fact, only one day a year was the high priest allowed to go in in the Day of Atonement to get into the Holy of Holies. So here's what I can conclude. The temple, as beautiful as this is, was still an unseen environment to everybody else. The presence of God in some crazy way was untouchable for the everyday people. And so I think what I love about what Selman wrote was is that Jesus, though... He came, in, in Matthew 27, verse 51, if you'll go there, Sean. You know, here you have the temple. But it's kind of like, <laughs> there's, there's no way in. Except the high priest can get in once a year. What I love is, it says in Matthew 27, verse 51, when Jesus was experiencing His crucifixion, when He's experiencing being killed and actually dying, it says in Matthew twenty-seven, fifty-one. suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary inside the temple. Now, this would have been Zerubbabel's uh, temple, right? Exile, he comes back. Zerubbabel starts building this. Why? Because he has document on how to build this. And it says that the sanctuary was split in, to- in two, from top-, from top to bottom. The earth and the rocks were split. You know what that means? Jesus tore the veil so that everyday people like you and me could have access to the presence of God. So up until this point, first temple, second temple, Right? Nobody had access to get into the presence of God. But Jesus, when his death came in, it allowed people to have access into the presence of, of the Holy God. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. It says, therefore, brother, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, verse 20, by the new and living way that he has inaugurated for us through the curtain that is... His flesh. So even though Solomon built an incredible picture, Solomon's faithfulness as he looks to establish the royal throne, you ready for this? It ultimately points to the coming Messiah. It ultimately points to, to Christ. And Christ says, Oh, by the way, that curtain, yeah, that's that's me now. That curtain that you want access to the, the presence of the living God that comes through my flesh, which was actually crucified on the cross. It's a new and living way to do it. It's a new and living way to come to the Father. And oh, by the way, all are invited. All are invited to experience Christ. But I want to just say this it's, it's, uh, the temple is not irrelevant. In fact, if you go to Hebrews 8, verse 5, here's what this does. Here's what this, all of this does. By Solomon and his faithfulness, Hebrews 8, verse 5, it just says this. These serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, Be careful that you you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So, whether it's Moses building the tabernacle or Solomon building the temple, these serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And oh, by the way, the heavenly things, it points to the Messiah. The royal throne is and has been established through the Christ through Jesus Christ himself and here's the crazy thing is Solomon's faithfulness begins to point us to this okay guys a lot here Uh, the only thing I'll say in 2nd Chronicles 4 the continuation of the building of the altar the reservoirs the lampstands the bronze furnishings the gold furnishings so what you see in 3 and 4 is Solomon's faithfulness with the help of Hammurabi to build these things out all point to yes a copy and a shadow of the heavenly All right, guys, have a great day. We'll talk to you tomorrow.